Before we get into the text this morning, I want you to either get out a a notepad, uh, you can use your bulletin if you grabbed one, um, or if you have your phone, open the notepad up in your phone. And I'd like you to take a moment and, and I want you to write down a list of three to five names of people. It could be longer, um, of people that you know that do not know who Jesus is as Savior. So I want you to come up with a, a list of people that you know, or, or maybe you're just not sure. Um, th- these could be people in your, your family. This could be uh, some friends that you have, a uh, co-worker, uh, maybe someone that you see regularly at the coffee shop, or you always sit in the same place in the, in the diner, and the same waitress or waiter comes to serve you, and you're not sure. Um, grocery store, you know, you know the people. Uh, just, I'd like you to write those names down, and then we'll get back to that list in a moment. Uh, this, this morning, uh, we are entering a supremely unique portion of Scripture in Romans. Uh, It's really a hinge passage as we have spent the bulk of our study for eight chapters looking at the doctrine of salvation. Um, For quite a while now, as we have taken our time to walk through these eight chapters that Paul has been writing, um, he has taken us on a master class of what it means for God to save us by his power. These first eight chapters of Romans are often referred to as the highest piece of writing in all of written word concerning the doctrine of salvation. Paul masterfully moved us through our need for salvation, our justification, our sanctification, and ultimately our glorification as God is the author and perfecter guaranteeing salvation's completed work on our behalf. Romans chapter 8 concluded with the triumphant explanation that we are hyper-conquerors. We are over-conquerors through Him, Jesus, who loves us. There is nothing that could ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but I've been truly amazed, extremely comforted to know that I am secure in Jesus Christ. And now we come to Romans 9. This chapter transitions Paul's thoughts of the power of God's salvation in the believer's life to a possible problem that could exist in the minds of his readers as they consider the doctrine of the believer's eternal security. That once you are saved, you are always saved. And what Paul is going to do in these chapters is he's going to present to us the thought that when you think about God securing love, it seems that there is a group of people that God had shown securing love to that have been set aside and forgotten. And those people are God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, the Jews. And so in Romans chapter 9, Paul shifts our thinking to this group of people and he considers, or he, he asks us to consider what God is doing on their behalf. 
In chapter 9, he'll bring uh, memories of God's past work in their lives. In Romans chapter 10, Paul will bring forth the idea that God is continuing to work in these people. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul will culminate his thoughts concerning the Jewish people when he says that God will keep His promises and this is what He will accomplish on their behalf. The question that is raised is really, what place does Israel have in God's plan of salvation? Because when you read the Old Testament, that they're the focus group. They're the people that the promises are made to. And then you get to the New Testament and Jesus shows up. And then you begin to see that God is building His kingdom through a people called the church. And so where does Israel fit into this? How do they work in God's sovereign plan? Because if God shows such secure, secure, faithful, never let go kind of love, it sure seems like these people are not a part of what he's doing now. Now chapter 9 introduces again to us the difficult doctrine of God's sovereign election. We're going to talk about that in the next couple weeks. As God calls those who belong to him. In fact, Chapter 9 itself, not just 9, 10, and 11, but chapter 9 itself has been so unsettling for some preachers. And I, I vetted this um, as they have done expositional studies like we do on Sunday mornings, verse-by-verse studies through the book of Romans. They've entirely skipped chapter 9 altogether. I'm serious. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to skip these verses. In fact, as I have spent time uh, praying through, thinking through, studying through these verses, not just this morning, but the the verses ahead of us that make up chapter 9 and 10 and 11, I again see God's faithfulness and His sovereign love. This is God's inspired truth. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to teach and read and believe. One of the things we need to remember is that when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote it on a a scroll. It was likely written on uh, something called vellum. Uh, Vellum would have been animal skin that was stretched out and treated, and they would have wrote on it, and it was rolled up, and then it was delivered. And then when the church in Rome got it, they would unroll it. They would read it publicly in the assembly, and then copies would be made and shared around uh, the known world. But they didn't have chapters, and they didn't have verses. It's just one long letter that Paul is writing. And he's writing his, his heart for, for God's power and salvation. And what he says in chapter 8, the climax of nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, is immediately followed with what he says in verse nine or chapter 9. And that's going to be a hard thing for us to grasp, I think, because you know, sometimes we approach, especially the Bible, but uh, books we read, right? When you pick up a novel or you pick up a, uh, uh, a biography or, or, or something that is nonfiction and you're reading a book, what do you normally do? Do you sit down and, and start reading it and finish it all the way through? No. Unless you're an extreme speed reader. 
But what you likely do is you stop at the breaks that are in the book, which are the chapters. And then maybe you put your bookmark in and you shut the book and you pick it up when you remember to. What Paul is saying in chapter 9 very much closely connects with what he is saying in chapter 8. It's the same messenger. It's the same message. And now God is inviting us to consider the depth of what Paul is saying as he writes these words. Following the exuberant praise of God's unfailing, unending, never-changing, never-breaking love, Paul follows it with the deepest sorrow that he writes in this letter. So let's just follow this progression here of what I'm talking about. I'm going to read Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read in beginning in verse 31, and I'm going to read in the chapter 9 through verse 5, which is where we'll stop. Now, we've read some of these verses before, so they're likely going to be familiar to you. But in Romans 8, 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of the brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promise, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. You get the sense of the highs and lows that Paul is feeling as he is communicating these truths. That our, our love in Christ is secure. And yet the realization of the vastness and the power and the magnitude of God's love also bought, brought Paul great grief. Because there is a group of people that should know. They should know these things. And they don't. And it breaks Paul's heart. What moved Paul's heart in such a way is that he loved his kinsmen. He loved them. His kinsmen are the people of Israel. It's the nation that he belonged to. Paul was once known as Saul and he was a Jew. 
He knew that God had made incredible promises to these people. Promises that seemingly stand alone, that culminate in the Messiah. And now Israel stands in a position of rejection. Not receiving, not believing what Christ has done for them. Israel's unbelief broke Paul's heart. It broke his heart to the point that he confesses that he would rather take their place in judgment than to see them judged. He would rather be separated from God's love than to see them separated by the love of God or from the love of God. This passage tells us a lot about this man, Paul, and his heart as the great apostle to the Gentiles. That's how we view Paul. He's the great apostle to the Gentiles. He was the man commissioned by God to go and bring the gospel to the outermost parts of the world, to the people that once did not belong to the promises and covenants and love and faithfulness of God. Everyone else that was not a Jew, that is who Paul was sent to. And yet, as Paul considered his responsibility and his relationship and the greatness of the gospel, he was deeply broken that his countrymen were living apart from God and have rejected his love. Paul took great pride in being a Jew, he really did. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. As Paul considered his past life, he was proud of where he once came from until he met Jesus. Because he goes on to say in Philippians 3, in the next verses, in spite of all that, it's all garbage, it's rubbish compared to knowing who Christ Jesus is as Lord. But Paul wasn't this casual spectator of what it means to be Jewish or what it meant to read in the Scriptures that God had a peculiar love for these people. He was a part of it. He grew up in it. He studied the Scriptures with the expectation and anticipation that God was going to use these people in a special way. And that out of these people would come a great Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer, who would come and bring wholeness and restoration to the people that have been broken. Paul was a great leader within his brethren. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
He had studied under one of the greatest rabbis at the time. He had known the law inside and out. He had such zeal for the things of Judaism that early on in the church, he was a great persecutor of the church. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it indicates that he was in full, hearty agreement in having Stephen stoned to death because Stephen proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it is said that Paul, who is referred to in the passage as Saul, was ravaging the church, going house to house, taking men and women out of their house and throwing them in jail for believing in Jesus. He loved Judaism. He loved Israel. At this point in his life, he considered the church as a counterfeit, as an attack on everything that they stood for. And shortly after that event, Paul met a man named Jesus. He was heading down the road to persecute the church more, and Jesus triumphantly came to him and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And his life was changed. And he came to know the Lord as the true Messiah. In Acts chapter 13, we begin to read that as Paul preached the gospel to the Gentiles, he always preached the gospel first to his Jewish brethren. He always went to where they were first. He would visit the synagogues and open the Scriptures and teach how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises. In Acts 13, we read in verse 15 that Paul was invited to teach in the Jewish synagogue of Pisidian Antioch. After teaching the Jews the promises made in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled them and that He was killed and raised on the third day. And that, Jesus, that Paul had announced forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That a week later, the same Jews that he taught in the synagogues were now blaspheming the things that Paul was saying. In verse 46 of chapter 13 in the book of Acts, we read that Paul then turned his attention to the Gentiles with the message of the gospel. And it was that way in many places. Paul would reach out to the Jews locally in the synagogues, then he would be run out of town, or they, they would be out to get him, and, and he would turn his attention to the Gentile people. And so in every way, Paul had a burden for these people. He cared deeply for who they were. And he mourned desperately for what they were missing. In light of so great a salvation, he lamented over the lostness of his countrymen. And so the tone shifts from chapter 8 into chapter 9, from celebration to lamentation. He's broken. He's... he's Every part of him 
desperately wants these people to get it. To know Jesus. This is the background of Paul's words in verses 1-3. through He writes, I am telling the truth. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Now this might seem like he's going over the top. Like, okay, you said it once. But he says three different ways. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit testifies with my conscience. God's Spirit in me agrees with what I'm about to say. As he is explaining the depth of love and brokenness and concern that he has for these people to the church in Rome, he wants the church in Rome to understand that every part of him desperately wants to see these people come to know Jesus. That the gospel isn't just a Gentile thing. That God's love, that the Savior's love is for all people. Even for the people that God first came to. Even for the people that rejected the Messiah and killed Him on a cross. This wasn't just a man who felt bad for people. But as he came to understand the hope of Jesus, God's Spirit agreed with Paul's heart that these chosen people were in a dangerous place as they rejected the promise of their Savior. Paul carried around with him a great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. He says that in verse 2, that I have great sorrow, great sorrow, magnified sorrow, and unceasing grief. What do you think of when you hear the word unceasing? Unending. Never stopping. Always with him. And this is the apostle that saw miraculous wonders, great things, lives changed, people transformed, the church growing. He saw the highest of highs. He had great joy in the Lord, great security in the gospel, great assurance of what it meant to be loved by God. And yet there was always this part of Paul's heart that he desperately ached for those that did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. The sorrow of his heart is great in its intensity, deep in its nature, amounting to nothing less than anguish and unceasing in its duration. It was always with him. Now, I need to be honest with you. And you're like, I hope you're honest with me. I need this reminder. I would like to be moved in my heart as Paul is for those who do not know Jesus. I wish I could say that I carried such a burden constantly for those that I know that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish I could say that my life was filled with tears for those that are living without the Savior. When we read this passage, we're looking into the pool of tears of Paul's heart. He's being extremely vulnerable with these people that he's writing to. We're looking at his heart of compassion for the lost and needy. And as I look at the attitude 
and the care that he has. I find myself coming up short. I find that I don't care like I should. Like I want to. Concerning those that are perishing around me. In the 1800s, there was a pastor that came from the Church of Scotland. His name was Robert Murray McShane. He had a heart for the Jewish people and had gone to the Promised Land several times with uh, fellow ministers of the Gospel, and he began evangelizing the lost. He, He developed a heart for these people that have rejected the Savior. Robert Murray McShane only lived to the age of 29. He died of typhus fever after preaching at an evangelistic meeting in England. But before he died, a young man had heard him preach the gospel with fervor and power like he had never heard. And he had seen many people, he'd watched many people respond to the gospel message. And this young man asked one of the deacons of the church where Robert Mary McShane was uh, involved with it. And he asked this man, he's like, what's the secret to what he's saying? And he preaches with such conviction, such power, such, as they referred to it in uh, the 1800s, unction. What does he have that people are responding in such a way to this message? And the deacon took, took this man into Robert Murray McShane's study when he wasn't there. And the deacon said to this man, kneel down here and weep and pray. And then after he told him that, he took them into the sanctuary, took him into the pulpit and handed him the Scriptures and he said, take this book and teach. That's it. You start thinking about it, it's really not that hard, right? Don't we make it harder than it is? It's desperately loving people. And it's teaching them the truth. We want to have all of these methods. We want to have the presentation wrapped up in a nice box with a bow. Heaven forbid we get rejected. To have a heart for people. To be broken for them and to love them enough that you would shed tears over their behalf because they need the Savior. Verse 3 indicates Paul's desire. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. For I could wish. That's an interesting word. The word here used for wish can also be translated pray. But in every English translation, I think except for one, they translate it as wish. 
And I think it's a good translation. I really do. This word carries the idea behind it more of a hope that cannot be a reality. Like Paul wishes if he could, what? That he could be accursed. You know what that word accursed means? It means to be sent to hell. Paul wishes that he could be sent to hell, separated from God's love, if it meant that his brethren would come to know Jesus as Messiah. Do we think that way? Do we live that way? Can we say that we pray this way for those that we know who do not know the Lord? In Paul's heart, he would rather take the place of his Jewish brethren in their eternal judgment and see them come to faith than to face separation with God. Now, he's not the only one. We have another example of this kind of love for people. It's found in the book of Exodus. You can turn there if you want. It's found in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, we have the example of another man that would rather take the place of someone who was facing judgment, and that is Moses. In Exodus, we find that God had delivered his people through this man Moses, and they're, gone, they're, they're on their way to the land that God was going to give them, the promised land. And along the way, they made the stop at the, the base of a mountain, Mount Sinai, and Moses went to the top of the mountain, and he spent a lot of time with the Lord, receiving the law, receiving the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and all the other promises and, and laws that would guide the relationship that God had with His chosen people, Israel. And we read in Exodus that as Moses was spending time up on the mountain, Everyone else in Israel was growing worried. And what did they do? Well, they went to the priest. Well, they went to Aaron at that point. They said, Aaron, help us out. We're worried. Moses has been up there too long. And they pleaded with him. And so Aaron relented and he gathered all the gold, all the jewelry, all the earrings, all the things they had. He molded it down and he created a calf, a graven image. And as Moses is receiving the law of God on the mountaintop, the Israelites are down on the mountain or down at the base of the mountain, worshiping a golden calf. And to know something about what was taking place in this pagan idolatrous worship that they would have likely seen and experienced somehow in some way in Egypt, they're dancing around this golden calf. And some commentators said that they likely danced naked around this golden calf. Like it is a full on, we would rather replace what we know to be true on the mountaintop with what we see down here. That would be more comfort. What do we know? Moses comes down off the mountain with the tablets. He had just spent time with the Lord. He sees what happens and what takes place. He breaks the tablets. He's angry. He's upset. He's frustrated. He's like, what are you guys doing? Moses is upset. And you better believe God is upset. 
God's ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. In Exodus 32, beginning in verse 30, we read this. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Moses is willing to take the place. Paul was ready to take the place. And we know that God did not judge Moses. The people were judged, but the journey resumed and the people were restored. But I wonder if in our prayer life we pray this way. Remember that list of names I told you to write down at the beginning of the service? Do you pray this way for those people? Are you broken? Would you rather be judged for their judgment? Would you rather them in coming to know Jesus that you would face their penalty? Now here's something that we know. What Paul wishes is not a reality. It's not. He... That's why it's so good to read Romans 8 with Romans 9. Paul just got done saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing. But it was Paul's wish, his desire. The language that Paul uses is clearly that of someone that loves the Lord and loves people. Listen, if you're not concerned about those who are around you, then you really need to start asking, do you love the Savior of Scripture? Paul proves in this passage what a wonderful heart he had for people, what a great missionary desire he had for those to come to know Jesus. And what was so frustrating for Paul is what he reveals in verses 4 and 5. His kinsmen are the Israelites. The chosen people, the children of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom belong the adoption of sons. Out of all the people in all the world, God chose these people and brought them into his family. They are the children that have seen the glory, the glory of God in a pillar of fire, in a cloud. They are the children that the covenants were made to, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and even the new covenant. They're the children that were given the law, the commandments that guided the relationship. And they were given the temple service. They had a place for God to dwell where they could come and worship and celebrate His goodness, and make offerings and sacrifices so that they could be pleasing in His sight. And they had the promises that through their people, 
one would come that would bless the nations. And He would be their Savior. And He would rescue them from the trouble that was around them. They had the fathers in verse 5. All the Old Testament people that just generation after generation, the patriarchs, they had Moses and Joshua, they had the judges, they had the kings, they had the prophets. And it was them from whom the Christ is coming in the flesh. Remember, Jesus was Jewish. They had all of it. It was given to them. And yet, as according to Psalm 118, verse 22, which was quoted by Jesus in Matthew 21, verses 42 and 43, the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. In Israel's unbelief, Jesus announces that the kingdom will be taken from them alone. And it will be built and given to a new people, the Gentiles. And it will produce fruit. The Christ came for these people. And Paul doesn't stop there as he's considering the greatness of God's promise and the power of Christ able to save. He cannot name the name of Jesus without breaking out into doxology. Whom is the Christ who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul cannot help but singing God's praises when he considers the sovereign saving power of Jesus. Now as we close, I I want us to consider something of the tension of Paul's anguish and his desire for these people to know Jesus as Savior. I, I believe we need to understand and, I, and we need to deal with this tension that exists as we earnestly pray for those that we know who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had anguish in his heart. He was broken. He was moved. But he doesn't just leave it at feeling anguish. He did something about it. Look one chapter later in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, Israel, is for their salvation. His heart's desire and his prayer to God is that they would be saved. Emotion alone doesn't accomplish anything. You know what I mean? Like you can feel really moved about something. Do you ever watch TV and the, I know, please don't, don't judge me on this illustration, but you ever watch TV and see the commercials for the Humane Societies and they put all these sad puppies and cats in front of you and they play sad music and you think, oh, that's so terrible. And then like five minutes later, you're like, what? Right, it's not, it's not this emotional response that it's like, 
well, I feel bad in the moment. Like when I think of the people that I wrote down, oh, so sad for them. And then a couple of minutes later, you don't even remember who they are. Emotion alone doesn't accomplish anything. To feel feelings doesn't mean anything. Paul's tears and his anguish cannot save a single soul. It's not enough for Paul merely to be in intense anguish over the spiritual state of the Jews. It had to flow into something. His emotions had to move him to the point. And what did it move him to the point? To pray for their salvation. To get on his knees and wrestle with the Lord. Asking God to use him and others to save these people. Paul's heart for their salvation is something that he yearns for, something that he lives for, and something that he longs to see God use. Listen, he didn't think of these people and think, idiots. They should have got it. They should know. And get frustrated and think, well, too bad for them. He would rather spend eternity separated from God to see them come know Jesus. It's his desire and it's his fervent prayer for these people. Never let anyone tell you that you are not commanded to pray for the lost. That's where the work begins. If you care about lost people, it's going to begin in the inner place. On your knees before the Lord. As we pray for lost people, the people that we know who do not know the Lord and the others that we know or we don't know that are living without Jesus, we get on our knees and ask God to work mightily. We can pray to God for the lost, and as Paul prays for the Israelites, we pray that they would be saved. We also need to understand something of the tension of Romans 9, and I hinted to it in the beginning of my uh, comments on this passage. Never let anyone tell you for a moment that God's eternal decrees and salvation, which include his predestination, his election, you know, the difficult doctrines that sometimes we struggle with. Never let anyone tell you that because of those things, that it should cut off the energetic effort on our parts to pray and to witness, to get on our knees and plead for their salvation. Listen, Paul believed in election, predestination, and all of the great doctrines that we're reading here that are hard more than any of us. Like he believed them more than any of us. He, he, he taught them. He wrote them. He was convicted by God, led by the Spirit to rest in these saving truths. 
And he was also moved in his spirit to get on his knees before the God that is sovereign over our election to pray on behalf of others that don't know him. These things are not mutually exclusive. And so we find here Paul pouring out his heart. He's not saying, God, I know you already got it figured out, so no big deal. Just do what you do. He doesn't say that at all. He's praying fervently for the salvation of the Jews. And very much certainly he's praying for these people specifically as he went from town to town and was chased out of town and looked people in the eye and got to know them. He would pray for them. Paul was willing to be imprisoned and suffer so that these people would come to know Jesus Christ. He said in first, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. I'm willing, Paul is saying, I'm willing to put up with the incredible abuse, city after city, so that people could come to know Jesus Christ. Back to that list. Can I challenge you to get serious? I mean, get serious. To be committed. To be moved in your heart to contend for the salvation of those that you know that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you all right now, I I know what the answer would be, but if I were to say... Do you want everyone you know to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? You don't have to say it. Sure you do. We all do. If we're going to see Jesus move in our midst and see those who are lost in sin be saved by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, it's going to begin with us being on our knees in anguish, praying, And asking God to use the resources that He does, which includes us, for them to come to find faith in the Savior. We've got to work ahead of us, right? I know I do. I want to pray for you that God would use you before He would ever send you that He would use you in the secret places of prayer to lift these people up to Him. Let's pray. Father.